Hey, good morning, Highland Park. Uh, my name is Brian. It's really good to be with you today. And I had been, been gone for a, a little while and uh, got to be back and doing this last week. And uh, if you missed that sermon, you missed a little bit of an update about what God kind of taught me uh, through the sabbatical time when I was away. And then we also uh, talked about how God saves the weird. And we, we looked at the story of Elijah. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Um, and what I want to do today is we're going to talk about another Old Testament story, but I want to build a little bit off of what we talked about last week. So let me give you a really quick review. Last week, Elijah was so down, so depressed that he crawled under a tree and wanted to die. And God, uh, we, we learned three things, that God was near him, God is near the weary and the broken. And we learned that God cares. He cared for him enough to even bake him bread right there. And God helps. He rescued him from that situation. And God wants to do the same for you if you are feeling weary and down. That I want you to remember that God is near, God cares, and God helps. And those three things, we're going we're gonna to allude back to those as we, as we go through this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. It's not very far into your Old Testament. Um, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's right, right in there. And it fits kind of chronologically in there as well. It's one of the best stories ever told. In fact, many, many good um, books and movies kind of follow the plot line that we see from the, the book of Ruth. It was, uh, takes place about 1000 BC. And it begins um, uh, with a man named Elimelech. And he lived in Israel. He was married to Naomi, and they had a good life. But when famine came over Israel, the two of them were so desperate that they had to move their family to Moab. Now, it wasn't a very far, long move geographically, but culturally, it was a big move. Because Moab, oftentimes we see in the Old Testament, was the enemy of Israel. So not only did they move to a foreign land, they moved to a foreign land that had been a declared enemy of their home country. Talk about feeling out of place. But things get worse. A short while later, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. So you have tears and pain and grieving, and there she is in this strange land. But her, her sons, two boys, um, both end up getting married to Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And they are all taking care of each other as a family would. And uh, it seems like there's hope for Naomi. There, there's hope for their family. But then tragedy strikes again. And both of her sons die. We don't know exactly how, but both of them die. So now you have three women who are all widowed in this short amount of time. And Naomi is thinking now everything has fallen apart. And there's nothing that could be more painful than for someone to lose not only their husband, but their children. And so it's Naomi and then Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, there who are left together. So it's loss upon loss. In fact, chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi describes her life as one full of bitterness. That's what it felt like at that time. And she receives word that her homeland, that the famine has, has lifted, things have gotten better. So she decides that she's going to go back to her hometown. And her hometown is Bethlehem. Hmm. Suddenly the story gets a little more intriguing. But 
she says to her daughters-in-law, you go back to your people, you, you go back to your families, to your clans, maybe you can be remarried, maybe your family will take you back in, but I can't care for you, and I'm releasing you from caring for me, because they wanted to care for their mother-in-law. And so she makes this plea for them to go back and to take care of themselves, and Orpah says, okay, and, and Naomi says, God bless you, and she leaves. But Ruth, she's not having it. In fact, in one of the most famous verses in, in Scripture, um, we see that Ruth clung to Naomi. In fact, we just sang the words a moment ago. But in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 of Ruth, this is what Ruth says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, when Naomi says, just go back to the Moabite people, go back to your family. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Get the pick, Naomi, I'm not leaving. (laughs) I'm with you. There's three action points I want to draw your attention to today and point out as we go along through the story. And the first is this. Cling to the vulnerable. Naomi was as vulnerable as she could be widowed in a foreign land, getting ready to try to go back home and make a life for herself again, and Ruth clings to her. Even in her own grief, she clings to her. So church, so everyone here, listen, to the people in your life who are vulnerable, who are grieving, you cling to them. And you know what it's like to try to love someone who's grieving They're not always the easiest people to love because when we grieve, we don't always think rationally, do we? When we get stressed out, we don't often think in a real calculated way. Sometimes we may have a little short temper. Uh, We may be a little over-emotional. And so sometimes it's difficult. But I want to encourage you to cling to the vulnerable people. And by doing so, you will represent God's nearness. We talked about last week how God is near. And God wants to be near to the grieving. And if you are near to the grieving, you represent God's nearness to them. That God will work through you to be with them and to love them and to care for them. So she returns to Bethlehem, Naomi does, along with Ruth. And they get back just in time for the barley harvest. So all the workers are going to be gathering around for this big harvest time. This was very important for them. And Ruth goes out into the field so that she can follow the workers and kind of pick up the leftovers. This wasn't considered rude or illegal or stealing, maybe a little bit desperate, but it was actually protected by the law. God had told them, the landowners, leave some leftovers for those who really need it. So she was doing what was culturally okay to follow behind, pick up some of the scraps and leftovers, thinking that she could hopefully get enough to feed her and, and Naomi. So that's where we get to the text. I want to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 4, if you want to read along with me in your Bibles. Otherwise, you can kind of listen and just place yourself in this story. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Quick time out. So Boaz owns the land. He shows up. And from the very first moment, I like this guy. How does he treat his workers? The Lord be with you. How do they treat him? The Lord be with you. I like this guy. He treats his workers with respect, and they obviously respect him back. So there's this greeting that we see here. Verse 5, 
Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants." Another little time out. Do you see that Ruth keeps saying, this isn't what I expected. As a foreigner, I did not expect this kindness. It tells you something about what typically would happen. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and she had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves. And don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And do not rebuke her. So Boaz comes out, sees Moabite, this, this foreign woman on his land. And what does he say? He says, go back to where you came from. No. He says, get off my farm. No. He, he shows her kindness that's above and beyond what anybody would have expected or even required. And that's action point number two for us this morning. Show above and beyond kindness to the vulnerable. By doing so, you will represent God's care. Because God cares for the vulnerable. And when you show kindness to them, you actually give them a little picture of God's love and God's care for them. Caring for them above the human capacity that only the Holy Spirit inside of you would cause you to care for someone with so much kindness that they could taste God's goodness right there. And Boaz was required by law to show kindness to the foreigners. And if you read through the Bible, you begin to see that God keeps making sure everyone knows this. In fact, over and over and over again, you could play a little game and just open to any page in your Bible and typically, it would be hard for you to turn two pages this way or this way and not find something about God's heart for the vulnerable, how he cares for people who are in trouble. It's just all throughout scriptures. And if you don't believe me, well, buckle your seatbelts because here we go. Jeremiah 7, if you do not oppress the foreigner, then I will dwell with you. So what's the flip side? If you do oppress the foreigner, I will not be with you. Leviticus 19, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. 
Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 24. Uh, you are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. Exodus 22. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves once were in Egypt. Deuteronomy 14. Hang with me here because I think God wants to say something with this volume of verses we see in the Scripture. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your own towns. So that the Levites and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widow who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Deuteronomy 24.17. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Can you say loan sharks? Our, our 220 food pantry team hates it when we talk to clients and I've sat in, at a table and talked to clients before who have been ripped off by people who were helping them by making a loan. And actually, they were exploited because of their desperate situation. And they were charged an interest rate that was beyond imagination. And it took their desperation and only multiplied it. God says, I have something to say about those people who do that. I have something to say about that system that allows that to happen. And so you do not do that. You do not treat people that way. Psalm 146 says, The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Zechariah 7, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. And James 127, you may have heard of this one before. Religion that God our Father accepts is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We could go on, but at some point we need to leave this morning. And I put a big list of these on your sermon page if you want to read more of them later. But let me say a few words to both groups that we are especially addressing this morning as we talk about the vulnerable, talking about the widow, talking about the foreigner. Naomi and Ruth both got a taste of these things. First, let me talk about loving the widow. I love the Highland Park Highlanders. I don't know if you know about this group, but it's a group of people here from Highland Park who get together once or twice a month, and they go into the, into the city to nursing homes, and they go and they sing, and they care for people. I love that. Because who do you find in the nursing homes? A lot of widows, a lot of people who are sick, a lot of people who are feeling lonely, who are feeling very vulnerable. And they go and they care and they love for them, and many of you regularly go and visit and you care for people, and that's exactly what the church ought to be doing. I love our Stephen ministry. I don't know if you know about our Stephen ministry, but our Stephen ministry has been trained, extensive training to come alongside and just care and help people, not as, as professional counselors, but uh, we believe that's very healthy and helpful too. But the Stephen ministers come alongside, and when someone's in a valley of life, they just hold their hand in that valley. They've been trained about how to listen and to pray and to care, and maybe you need a Stephen minister, and you can talk to us about that of someone to come and just be with you while you're in your valley. I love that our church talks about being multi-generational. Here in about a month, we're going to relaunch our small groups. And why we don't require it, um, we we name it as a value for our small groups to be multi-generational. And there's a reason for that. 
because so many beautiful things happen in the multi-generational context. Let me just tell you, for instance, my small group that uh, I've been blessed to be part of over, over this last month, um, some of the younger folks in our small group have been able to help some who are a little bit older with physical projects like moving stuff. And one of the things that my wife and I have talked about, you know, as parents, if you have lots of kids, sometimes you're ready for a little break from your kids. But when we walk into our small group, some of the older people in our small group almost fight for the attention of our children because they miss children and they want to be with them. That is win-win, if I've ever heard of it. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. And I know that sometimes... People who are a little older think, well, I don't think younger people want to hang out with me. And I think sometimes people who are a little younger think, I don't think older people want to hang out with me. And let me tell you both, you're wrong. Because I've talked to enough people here who said, one of the most beautiful things in, in my life is when this older person or this older couple or, or these folks from church who are a little more seasoned than me have come alongside me and said, yeah, let me talk to you about what it's like to have your first job or your first child or to talk about a dating relationship that you're thinking about, or, or, or how, to, how to be a family man. Oh, the, the wisdom from those who are more seasoned in life is so valuable. And, and for people in a stage of life who can drop everything and immediately go help, that's a beautiful thing. And I've heard some, from some of those who are a little more seasoned in life say one of the most beautiful things is to have children in my life and to have younger people in my life. And I love that our church is pursuing this dream of being multi-generational, and we know we're going against the grain here culturally, and I'm glad for that. I, I mean, I wish we weren't going against the grain. I wish all culture said, hey, everybody be together and love each other, but culture doesn't really do that very much. So we're working against the grain on that one, and I love that we have that value. Let me end with these words to those who are vulnerable. If you find yourself as a widow, or a single mom, or a single dad, or single, and you're feeling lonely, and you're feeling vulnerable in life, then this church wants to help you and love you, and to the church, you look and you find those people, and you be with them, and you love them, and you cling to them, and you show them above and beyond kindness. Let me say a few words about foreigners. Boaz knew something of what it was like to feel like a foreigner. Now, in the Bible genealogy, you, we have to give a little wiggle room because if somebody said the father of, the mother of, in a genealogical list, it could mean the grandfather of or the grandmother of. That, that's not being deceitful. That was just cultural. That, so we have to give a little bit of wiggle room, okay? Are you with me? A little bit of wiggle room here? As the Bible shows this list and tells us, the mother of Boaz could have been the grandmother. Maybe the mother of Boaz was named Rahab. Hmm. That Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, the only one who survived from Jericho, the sworn enemy of Israel, and she ends up saving the day for God's people and then joins the Israelites to be with them. That Rahab. And I imagine that many people saw her as a hero, but I also could probably guess that some people still saw her as a foreigner because that's kind of what we do as human beings sometimes. We, we, it matters to us too much about where someone is from or what they look like or the language that they speak or how they speak. It's natural to resist the outsiders. I'm going to read two quotes to you 
Both of these quotes have kind of swept through uh, our country into different places, and let me just read them. Quote number one uh, came from a cable news station. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people, and they are changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like. It's been caused by both legal and illegal immigration. I don't know what you hear when you hear that, but what I hear is, if you're a foreigner, I'm not too happy you're here. If you don't look like me and talk, to, talk like me, I'm not very happy that you're here. Let me read another quote. Speaking of foreigners, they will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Now, that second quote wasn't this last week like the first one was. It was actually 1751, Benjamin Franklin talking about the Germans that he didn't like coming over. It got him in some political hot water, and he tried to undo that. But when we read, even back then, people were afraid of foreigners, or sometimes they could score political points by talking negatively about a certain people or a certain people group. It's been happening, and it happens everywhere all the time. And here's the deal. This immigration issue has become such a hot-button issue for so many people. I mean, so many people are just up in arms and fighting and angry. And this is my prayer for the church that the church would not let a political position nullify their love of God's people, of God's creation. And, and both parties have been guilty of using foreign people, immigrants, illegal, legal, whatever, whoever, from wherever, as pawns to gain political power. And if you've missed that and you think it's only the other party, you've missed something. It's been happening for a very long time, and I'm not saying every politician is guilty of that, but a number of them are. And my concern for the church is we have something more to lose than a policy. We have sin at play here because God says you love the foreigner and you care for the foreigner. And so church, if a political uh, position is causing your heart to be removed from loving the foreigner, leave your political position first before you leave God's commands to care for all people, whether they're in this city or in this country or far away, wherever they may be, whether you're traveling or whether you're walking next door and meeting someone who speaks another language. You love them and you care for them. Somewhere there's a place for political policy, but it's always way down, way secondary, I mean way, way secondary to our obligation to live as people of the kingdom of God. And that means we love all people, all people. And we care for all people, especially the vulnerable. Have you ever got that uneasy feeling of when you are outnumbered, like you're the minority? I think it's one of the healthiest things we can experience because so oftentimes you might be in a situation where you are always the majority, but maybe sometimes you've walked into someone's home and they eat dinner very differently than you do. I mean, a very different you know, way of doing that. Have you ever taken a big bite of food and then realized, oh, this family prays before they eat and you're trying to hide that you're chewing you know, a big bite of meatloaf or something? And you realize, oops, you know, hopefully maybe that's your culture too, but maybe it's not. Or have you ever been somewhere and nobody spoke English? Or have you ever been somewhere and realized, 
I look a little bit different than everybody here, or everybody dresses a little bit differently than I do. It makes you like a little uneasy, right? I always get a kick out of when we've taken mission trips to Chicago, and at the church where we attend on Sunday, they do communion a little bit differently than we do here. And it's always kind of funny to watch our students trying to figure out exactly how they're supposed to do that. Uh, the church is awesome. They don't always explain it real well to everyone. And I've seen our students be like, oh, mm, nope, do I take the bread back out? What do I do? And there's just that little bit of uneasiness when you're in a new place, right? And so do you see what Boaz does? He actually tells his men not only be kind to her, not only, hey, don't run her off. He actually says, don't embarrass her. That means something. That's above and beyond kindness. You don't, don't embarrass her. She might, she might trip up a little bit culturally. Don't embarrass her. Don't mock her for that. In fact, take some of what you're gathering and leave it behind. Be like, oh, I missed this. I missed this. Boaz is saying, I don't have guys with clipboards that are going to dock you today if you come back with a little bit less than you should. You leave plenty for her, above and beyond kindness. And if the story isn't good enough, it gets even better because I have to tell you about this cultural thing that happened that they called the kinsman redeemer. And what a kinsman redeemer was, was was somebody who would help somebody in need. So if a woman like Ruth lost a husband and suddenly was in this place in this patriarchal, patriarchal society where she could not get employment and maybe provide for herself, then she would feel very vulnerable. And so the idea of the kinsman redeemer was somebody in her former husband's family, an unmarried man, could come and say, I would like to be your husband to care for you, to provide for you, to, to drape this hedge of protection around you and to love you. And, and she to care and to love for him is this beautiful idea of protecting the most vulnerable of society. And so it's this great picture here. And Naomi concocts this plan of, okay, I've seen how Boaz has already treated us. I think this could be God's provision for our family. And so she sends Ruth to do something that's going to sound very strange to you. And it probably sounded very strange to Ruth. But culturally, it wasn't strange to Boaz or to Naomi or people who understood. But see, Boaz seems to be a fairly gentle soul and unassuming. And he's probably not going to ask Ruth Um, to be his wife. So they pick up on this. But there's a way that Ruth can initiate this, being culturally appropriate. So she sneaks out at night, and she's watching as the men are working. Nobody goes home and sleeps during harvest time. You just sleep wherever you've been working. So they're sleeping out in the field, or they find a barn or a shelter. So she sees where they go to bed. They lay down, cover up with blankets. They're all asleep. She sneaks in. And she uncovers the blanket, uncovers his feet. I imagine they don't smell so great after a day at the harvest. Uncovers his feet and snuggles in next to them. Now that sounds very strange, but culturally what that was saying was, I would like to be your wife, that I I submit to your leadership in my life, to your helping me in my life. Boaz is snoring away, and finally later in the night, You know, he wakes up. Of course, Ruth can't sleep all night, but he wakes up, and he does not want 
one, anything inappropriate to happen or for anyone to even think anything inappropriate happened. I like Boaz even more. So he says, I'm going to get on this first thing tomorrow. Thank you so much that you have shown this kindness to me. I'm a little bit older than you. I can't believe that you would want to be my wife. But I'm going to go figure this out tomorrow. And so he sends her off and is thankful. And then the story takes another little turn because it's not a slam dunk deal. Because Boaz knows that there's someone who's actually closer in line than he is to be able to marry Ruth. Oh, no. (laughs) So he goes to the town, and he gathers up the elders because, again, I like Boaz. He seeks wisdom. Gathers up the elders, and he he gathers up this, gets this guy, and he says, hey, you can actually be the kinsman redeemer. And he tells the whole story, and he says, if you do this, then Naomi has some land, so you could take care of this land for them. And the guy's like, okay, I like land. And he says, and also you would be the husband to Ruth, the Moabite. And the guy says, eh. I'm out. And he says, it might endanger my estate. And we're not sure if, you know, he thought having a Moabite woman would endanger his reputation or what he means. But we honestly, when we're reading the story, we don't even care because we're cheering because we want Boaz and Ruth to get together in this game of the bachelorette, right? <laughs> I mean, we're cheering for this. And if, if this was a movie, you know, we're, this is where the orchestra kind of swells And we realize, okay, they can actually be married, and they both want to be married to each other. And so uh, he marries Ruth, and it's beautiful, and he takes care of Naomi as well, Um, Ruth's mother-in-law, now his mother-in-law, and it's all just this beautiful thing. If, if, uh, If you read my book or have heard me talk a whole lot about racial reconciliation, I've talked about John Perkins. He's a hero of mine. He's considered... And I've heard him call recently the godfather of racial reconciliation, but he's given his life to helping the poor and helping the marginalized and um, done so just in a, in a God-honoring way. And he loves this story. This is one of his favorite stories in the Bible because John Perkins was born to a family of sharecroppers in Mississippi. He understood poverty, and under that system, his family would work all day long, and they would be given just enough to barely maybe survive, but they were never given enough to own anything or to have anything or to improve their situation. In many ways, it was a form of slavery because they didn't have enough money to go anywhere or to do anything different. In fact, in the third grade, he had to drop out of school to work the cotton fields with his family so they could survive. It's amazing. This man's still alive. This was in his lifetime. I mean, he was a kid. And so he talks about the brutality of that system that he experienced as a child that would keep him in that system and for generations because of the lack of education. But he says, but look at Ruth. Look at what happened. He said, Boaz lets her work, which he would tell you is beautiful for the person needing help because when you work for your food, there's a sense of dignity you maintain. At the 220 Food Pantry, we talk about that all the time. How can we help people have both dignity and responsibility um, as, we, as we help them and assist them? But not only that, but, but Boaz gives them extra. See, Perkins never knew extra when he was a kid. But Boaz gives Ruth enough to eat and Naomi enough to eat. And if my math is correct, they could, put, could have put you know, 25 pounds of food away in storage. So and that was just one day's work. That's pretty good. 
So it's above and beyond kindness. And then not only that, Boaz doesn't just let Ruth work on the farm. He gives her the farm. He marries her. So she has a legal entitlement then, and this land is redeemed, and she is redeemed, and their family is redeemed. It's a beautiful thing, and that brings me to action point number three. It's this. Lay at the feet of your helper. If you are the vulnerable one, the hurting one, lay at the feet of your helper. By doing so, you will trust God's help because the Lord is your helper. The story concludes as as Boaz and Ruth get married and she has a baby boy. And verse 16 said, Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. And I imagine that little grandson received a whole lot of care from his grandma. There's nothing more beautiful than a grandma holding that baby. I think sometimes the parents are so overwhelmed with, they got to change the diaper and get back to work and do this and this and this. And, and the grandparents can just sit back and say, this is a gift from God. And you kind of see in the story Naomi just taking this in and caring for this little boy. Again, with genealogy, I want to give a little bit of wiggle room here, but the text tells us that the boy's name was Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. Ooh, King David, a man after God's own heart, the greatest king of Israel, was from the line of Boaz and this Moabite foreigner widow, whom he redeemed with his life. And Jesse would have children who would have children. And if you go to the book of Matthew and you read the genealogy, you see Rahab and you see Boaz and Ruth and Jesse and David and Jesus, born in the town of Bethlehem, the town of David. You see, when we're reading Ruth, we're reading this beautiful love story, and then all of a sudden it hits us. This story is not even about Ruth and Boaz. They, they get to be key players in this text. But the story is this, Jesus is your kinsman redeemer, that you are the vulnerable, that you are the hurting, that you are the lonely, that you are the helpless, that you have no chance, and then Jesus comes to redeem your life. That's the story a thousand years before Jesus is born, and we're reading the story of Jesus. How beautiful is the Bible? I love that it points us right to Jesus. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, Jesus became our kinsman redeemer, not by a wedding in that sense, not by buying some land or giving us some grain, but by dying for us. He redeemed us, gave us value and worth and hope and a future, and he wants to do the same for you. And if you have never been redeemed by Jesus, saved by Jesus, rescued by Jesus, we invite you to do that. We invite you to come, even this morning during this next song. If you want to come up forward and pray with us, we would love to pray with you and talk with you. If you want to mark on your card that you want to study with someone this week about what it means to follow Jesus, about what it means to be baptized, we would love to do that with you however is most comfortable and easy for you. We just want to get with you and help you make this beautiful, difficult, wonderful decision to give your life to Jesus and to follow him, your Redeemer. If you would, would you stand and let me pray for us? 
God, we, we thank you that you are our redeemer, that you love us, you care for us, you saved us when we had nothing. And for the person here who is still in that predicament, I pray that today they would be overwhelmed with your love for them and the opportunity they have to be redeemed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.